Inescapably foreign. Welcome to Without Borders. I'm your host, Nolan Yuma. If you've been listening to the show, you know this is the podcast for nomads, expats, immigrants, refugees, third culture kids, or anyone else that feels inescapably foreign. Today, I have a special guest here, Coco Hoffs. She's a business and cultural consultant at Cross Cultural Solutions, which is her business. She's from the Netherlands and currently splits her time between Chile, Peru, and the Netherlands. Uh, so, Coco, just to get things going, how are you doing today? Thank you for this wonderful introduction. I'm doing really good. I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy, I'm happy to have you on the show because I um, finally have an expert in cultural competence. It's something that uh, I'm very passionate about. Now, I kind of got into it from the cultural psychology side of things. And then through studying cultural psychology, I started learning more about cultural competence and, of course, my travel experience. But you got into it more from the business side of things, correct? Correct. Yeah. So I I worked for H&M, the Swedish retailer, in an executive management role for approximately 12 to 15 years. Uh, originally started doing that in the Netherlands and then I got the opportunity to move to Singapore, to Japan, followed by Chile and Peru. And um, I was working as a crisis manager, so I was responsible for, you know, managing all the unforeseen crisis situations for the H&M group. But I felt at a certain point, you know, that the biggest crisis for me to manage was managing all the cultural differences in the workplace. Um, I, I realized that they had a significant impact on how smooth business goes, on how my leadership style was perceived or how I perceived others. And I realized that, I mean, along with H&M and many other big corporate organizations, you know, it was not, uh, let's say it was not a leadership program that was, you know, woven into the business side. Um, so yeah, well, it was a lot of trial and error. Um. And then after living in Japan for two years, moving to Chile was again, you know, like a, a change of day and night. Um, and I was leading a team of approximately 16 people with 11 different cultural backgrounds. And then I realized, okay, this, you know, this is such, so much more of a challenge than, than anyone can foresee. And I decided to, you know, take a leap of faith and started consulting and training corporate organizations to yeah to overcome cultural differences in the workplace so just to get into a little bit of your personal story and your learning curve what was it like at the beginning because now of course when you go to a different culture you have all this experience and i'm sure you adapt to the business styles quite quickly but what was it like at first before you had the experience and the training what were some of the things that stood out i mean um so it was especially in 2016 in Japan when I realized that, you know, the, the cult, my cultural background and the cultural background of my colleagues, peers, it was a very culturally diverse group that we were working with, really played a part in how smooth meeting goes, or for example. And I remember one time that, you know, we had a meeting with all peers, so all management executives. And we all had a different understanding of what the outcome of that meeting had to be. So, you know, for me, for example, it was super clear that we were going to have a discussion, you know, a good brainstorm in order to drive consensus and come as a group to, to one decision, for example, where, you know, my colleague from Greece just basically slammed his hand on the table saying, okay, can someone for Christ's sake, just take a decision? You know, if we had this completely different understanding of when a meeting is a good meeting, who should take decisions? Um, I remember that we, 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 we changed our boss basically. So, so along the way we got a new, uh, CEO for the company in Japan and, um, I remember me and my colleague coming out of a meeting with that new CEO and we both had a completely different impression. You know, I said, oh, this person is so, you know, taking everyone's opinion into consideration where someone else said like, oh, I, I you know, he's super hierarchic. You know, we had this thing, oh, yeah. perceptions. Yeah. 
Now you're Dutch, so you are an you, you're an outlier. Well, your your country, your culture is an outlier in some I, cases. No, no, I would say not in some. I think you're very you're very you're spitting it very lightly. No, no, true, true. Um, now we'll get into the eight scales, but just to bring up one right away is when we're talking about feedback, right? When we're talking about negative feedback. Um, the Dutch are the most negative, or I guess Israelis are up there as well. Uh, oh. But Dutch Dutch are very high on that end. Uh, I like it for me. <laughs> I'm a Belgian person. Now, Belgian people aren't quite as high on that scale. But I think just a personal thing, I like straight up negative feedback. But what was it like for you to adjust to that? Because it must be difficult for a Dutch person to, let's say, work with Japanese. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Beautiful question. I mean, um, it's true that uh, uh, Dutch people are extremely comfortable with direct negative feedback, right? You already mentioned it. So that goes both ways. So providing it, but also receiving it. And with that being said, uh, an average Dutch person is also used that used to the fact that feedback, negative feedback stands on its own. So once it comes with compliments, for example, or it's wrapped, you know, around with a lot of, let's say, what a Dutch person would call fluffy wording. Yeah. It's really confusing, you know. An average Dutch would really perceive that as like, but what is it that I need to work on? You know, just tell me what it is, really. Um, so to answer your question, how that was, um, adjusting to providing feedback in a bit more nuanced way was not so complicated for me. The receiving, however, you know, because it's, that's a whole new skill. I had to start listening to things that were not said, you know, words that were in between the lines. And that it was a skill that I've never developed growing up in the Netherlands where all negative feedback stands on its own. We're not trained, let's put it like that, to hear in between the lines and to actually hear the things that are not sad instead of that are really sad that was super complicated and very confusing for me and like you know a lot of let's say verifications um, yeah that that was a challenge really now um, we, we will get into all eight scales of Aaron Mayer but just since we're talking especially about this one thing that's so specific to the Dutch with the negative feedback do you think it depends a little bit on the subcultures in the Netherlands as well? Because that's one, well, it's very difficult to find criticism on Aaron Mayer's book. Uh, but Aaron Mayer's book is based on Hofstede's research, um, based on her, her own experiences, based on uh, Edward Hall. And once I started looking at them, I could find a lot of more academic critique. And some of the critique is that it's, it looks at the entire country, but there are so many differences, let's say, between women and men, um, uh, which socioeconomic background you are. So I'm wondering, just when we're talking about this, uh, about the negative feedback, does it vary depending on the socioeconomic status at all? Or does it vary from region to region in the Netherlands at all? Or do you think it's it's fair to generalize there? Well, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, first of all, it's always generalizing, right? When we talk about these topics, unfortunately, there is no other way in a podcast setting like this to, to generalize. I think when it comes to the negative feedback or the, let's say the level of comfort around it, it's relatively fair to generalize because if you look at the education system, for example, you know, it's a, the Netherlands has a national public education system. All schools have more or less the same way of approaching, um, uh, their curr curriculum, for example. Um, there you see that, right? You see that teachers are upfront towards kids from, I would say, kindergarten onwards, right? And, yeah. you know, if you, if you have a question about certain material as a kid in school, you raise your hands and it's your responsibility to make the teacher aware that you have a question. You know, it's not the teacher that is fishing along all the kids, you know, 
if the material is landing or not. So that is very deeply rooted in 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 our culture. Um, yes, there are some nuances. I mean, you're you're very aware with the Belgium culture and you know the south of the Netherlands that that um, is much more closer to Belgium has a bit more. I would say this nuanced way of providing feedback. I can see that. But in general, uh, yeah, it's very national in this case. Okay. Good. So th now th the reason I bring it up like this is because while we're going to go through these eight scales and talk about cultural competence, I want all the listeners to realize that this needs to be an ongoing conversation. When someone's giving you advice about cultural competence, we generalize because it's it kind of it makes it a little bit easier to categorize and start to understand things. But you, of course, there are nuances depending on the business, depending on the organization. And I'm encouraging the listeners as well to comment on this show and to get into the conversation because, of course, culture is fluid. It's constantly changing. A lot of the research that this is all based on comes from the 1980s, uh, comes from IBM employees, which are, you know, middle class. Uh, they have a certain background. So please, everything we're about to say, a lot of it is accurate from my experience as well, but get into the conversation. Uh, so that all being said, uh, Kobo, can you tell us about the eight, um, the eight scales from Aaron Mayer? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Um, I think for everyone who is not aware of, of uh, the eight scales of Aaron Mayer is that uh, is she developed a framework that basically shows eight different type of behavior types, right? Where we can then map out countries or individuals from left to right on those scales. Now, what is extremely important to understand is that it doesn't matter where on the scales or on the dimensions a country or an individual lands. What matters is the relative distance between, for example, two or three countries. And that distance generates or creates a certain perception. So let's say um, uh, when we talk about cultural perception, basically we, we talk about that two different cultures, let's say Belgium and the Netherlands, can look at Canadians and perceive them very differently. And if we then would see that on the culture map framework, you would, for example, see that Canada falls in between the Netherlands and Belgium. Okay, so eight different type of uh, behaviors. So the first one is communicating, where from left to right, we look at very explicit communication, you know, like things are said as they are. Uh, Americans, Canadians, Dutch, very, very low context communicators. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'll tell you, then I'll summarize it, and then there will be space for you to have questions. Versus the other side on the scale is high context communications, which is very high context, meaning in a dialogue, I assume that we share the same context and it's not up to me as a sender in the communication to provide the context. So it's more in between the lines, you know, uh, messages land more, um, for example, in how you say it rather than what you say. Um, that is general communication. Then the second one is evaluating and we already touched a bit on that. That's how we provide feedback, negative feedback. From left to right, very comfortable with direct negative feedback. And on the other side, um, indirect negative feedback. So, well, direct we already touched upon, but indirect could be, for example, um, let's try to find a very, uh, very concrete example. So, um, let's say I made a mistake at work and um, my boss would come to me in an indirect uh, negative feedback culture, my boss would come to me saying, hey, you know what? I talked to my wife yesterday over dinner about what happened with you the other day. Yeah, ha, ha, she was saying, uh, oh, that would never happen to me. In the Dutch directness, that would be the equivalent to that was really bad. Please make sure that that would never happen again. I don't want to see that. It's the same. It's, it's, a, it's a different way of saying the same thing. Um, and then the third one is leading. That basically shows how much we defer and refer to authority. 
So are we more comfortable with hierarchy? Um, or are we much more into an egalitarian way of doing things where, for example, a teacher in schools is more facilitator among others, right? That's on the egalitarian side. Um, funny fact is that on that scale, the leading scale, we see that the whole world is shifting more from a more hierarchic point of view towards a more egalitarian point of view. And that's where, for example, digital digitalization or globalization kicks in, right? Because back in the days, let's take Japan, a very hierarchic country or culture. You know, back in the days where you didn't have an internet, so who was the one that was telling the truth? It was the most senior person or the doctor or your grandfather, you know, all the knowledge was captured in someone that was more senior than yourself. And of course that is different now, right? We have internet, we have, we have digitalization. So we see that the whole world is shifting more towards an egalitarian preference. Um, fourth one, deciding. How do we prefer to come to decisions? So on the left, you find consensus-driven cultures versus top-down decisions. So consensus-driven cultures believe, and you probably recognize this a bit yourself as well, but, and me too, but they believe that, you know, when making decisions, when everyone agrees, the outcome is most probably more secure. So the chances of success are bigger versus top down where decisions are made usually by one person, which is then in a business setting, the boss, and then, you know, they, they drop down as it is. Interesting to understand with that dimension is that decisions that are made with consensus usually take longer to be taken, but once set they tend not to change. Definitely. I, I want to jump in here quickly Please. just because uh, there's a very interesting outlier here. And when it comes to cultural psychology, uh, criticism just across the board is that there is always this East-West divide. And of course, there are so many differences within the East, within the West as well. And I think here is a really good example of that with Asian countries because most Asian countries, um, they, they're on the top down side of things, except for which one? Japan. You know. Japan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Japan is, um, and that's, I mean, I, I can share later on, like an, a, a, an example that I experienced myself leading a Japanese team, but this is a, a real big, uh, challenge really, because Japan is super hierarchic. So they refer to authority, they defer to authority, you know, the boss is usually respected, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to making decisions, they're one of the most, most probably the most consensus driven culture in the globe. And that's true. You're right. You know, other Asian countries do not show the same behavior or the same pattern in the Japanese culture. Um, making decisions as a group, not being, not losing face towards your Japanese colleagues or to, towards, you know, let's say society is very important. And for that reason, decisions will have to be made all together with consensus. Yeah. Yeah. It's extremely interesting. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly jump in there. Um, well, okay. So, uh, we were, we were talking about the, um, uh, Wait, we're, we're on number five now, right? We were on, uh, yeah, we left off on uh, the design side. So we're going to number five, which is the trusting one. And um, that is, I mean, my favorite, I would say, but it's also the, the for me, doing business, the most crucial one, because this one shows how we build trust differently across the globe. And here we look at cognitive trust. So trust created by the brain. Right. So you have emotional trust. That's basically from your heart. I mean, uh, you're my brother, you're my sister. I trust you. Right. And then cognitive trust is coming from the brain. 
I see that you have done a great job. I see that you handed in your, your work on time. You're never too late in the office. I trust you. You know, it's, a, it's built in a different way, basically. And what you see on that dimension or on that scale from left to right is task-based trust, which is much more uh, cognitive, meaning I see that you're on time. You, you meet all your deadlines. I trust you. Why do I want to do business with you? Well, I have a problem. You have a solution. You have a good story around it. We sign a contract and let's get the show on the road. Versus relationship-based trust. Well, I think it's important for, for you to understand that every human, regardless of cultural background, is human relationship oriented, right? We are more social animals, so to say, right? We, we really like to interact with people. However, how much time you're willing to invest in that in order to do business together differs across the globe. And this dimension shows, for example, um, that on the right side, you know, the relationship-oriented trust-building cultures, China, Japan, um, Latin America, but also... Many of the Arabic countries. Many of the Arabic ones. Yeah, very good point. And, but also, you know, Spain, Italy, um, uh, you know, Southern European countries as well. Um, where the relationship and developing the relationship in between humans is much more important. It's something that we also see, for example, in emerging markets where, yeah, how do I know if we do business that I get my money? Yeah, I mean, we can sign a contract, but that's worth nothing, right? When when the shit hits the fan. Sorry for my French. Oh, you no. could swear on this show. Okay, great. <laughs> great, thanks. I, I, I tried lightly, but uh, no, but, um, you know, when the shit hits the fan, how do I know that I get my money? Well, you know, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, we signed a contract and then there's a lot of institutions out there that will help us collecting our money, for example. But... Yeah, in Nigeria, that doesn't really exist. So it's very important to have that human relationship and to, you know, I trust you because you know people that know people that know people, you know, and when the shit hits the van, I have several, several hats to, to reach out to really. So, um, and this is an extremely important one because I think we all agree without trust, no success, right? Now, I'm, I'm wondering from your experience, how accurate has this scale been for you? Because this is one of those where it seems like a lot of the data is anecdotal and there's a lot more data um, in Western countries than there is in especially a lot of Arabic countries. Um, even though the Arabic countries get, get thrown on the scale and they get thrown on the, the relationship building side, there is a lot less data there. So again, listeners, if you don't agree with this, you you might be right in some cases because there is less data here. And like from my experience, um, I've always heard China is very much on the relationship side. All the literature you read, it's it's accurate. It relates to Aramir, um, and it's been confirmed in many ways. But when I worked for some Chinese companies online, um, there wasn't, we weren't all, we weren't allowed to have a personal relationship. We weren't allowed to share our emails. We weren't allowed to, um, really have this relationship outside of class, which kind of contradicts all this. And then I started thinking, whoa, is everything I learned in cultural psychology, not right about this. Um, but then the business, uh, well, the Chinese government outlawed it that, um, uh, foreign people weren't allowed to teach anymore online. So the businesses had to restructure. Um, I was able to stay in touch with some of the students because they found me online. And that's when all of a sudden I noticed how much they love the personal relationship. And that's one of the reasons they also looked at me because when I, I can't help it. When I teach, I, I love to get personal. It's just the way I am. Um, even, even though I should maybe adapt to some different cultures, I don't in that case. I just love to get personal and, and get into those conversations. And then I noticed that they they do kind of create uh, crave this relationship building aspect of things, and to like let's say um, find other clients, it all depends on who you know. 
But then there is this strange contradiction with these online businesses because it didn't matter who you know. It was all about which degree you had, which university you went to. Like for me, I noticed I was filling out the survey. Um, and then the second I put, I went to UBC, which is one of the top 100 university or yeah, top 100 universities in the world. Then all of a sudden it was like, boom, I got, I don't know how the algorithm works, but I was right at the top. Incredible. And then you see that's, that to me is task-based. Yeah. Uh, that, so yeah, I was just wondering what, what your experience is with this is, is, is it sometimes in China that it maybe is more task-based than the literature says, or um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, um, I, the truth is I've never lived or worked in China, right? I have worked with Chinese. Um, and I mean, let's be honest, we're generalizing because China is, of course, gigantic, right? There must be so many subcultures out there as well. Yeah. I think what I also picked up on, on the story that you were telling about um, you teaching, their hierarchy plays a part as well. So they're very relationship oriented. And in order to do business, it's important to uh, develop that personal relationship. However, if you're in front of the class, you know, and you're the superior teacher, then that is not super appropriate. Um, so that might have been in the way, you know, it could be, I, I don't know. Um, there's probably more nuances to the story. Uh, it's true that Chinese are definitely more relationship oriented versus, for example, uh, um, well, Canadians or um, Scandinavians, as an example. Um, and doing business requires investment in the relationship. I Not so long time ago, I, um, um, I spoke to a Scandinavian company that actually went to China to pitch uh, for a bidding. You know, they wanted to become a business partner of a Chinese company. They flew in, they pitched, they flew out. And competitors actually flew in, pitched, stayed, developed the relationship, were there, were available, you know, created time in, I think, Shanghai was where they were. And, you know, they were chosen over the other because, you know, developing the relationship and making time and being available. And I mean, back in the days, you know, you had to get drunk together in order to, to see who you are beyond your professional persona i think that is changing what's the do you remember the word in japanese for that um, um no me no me ah, are you i forget it right now oh, i i, no I wish it was well the english the english way to put it is no communication it's basically um uh it's a it's a communication versus no me nai i believe Oh, I feel okay. so not that I don't remember. But it's basically making someone speak by drinking. Yeah, yeah, and I, th I think it's so interesting, especially in a culture like Japan, where it's you have to save face a lot of the time. Yeah. You have to have multiple personalities to make sure that you're acting in the correct way, depending on who you're with. But then, when it comes to getting together with your colleagues, you got to get drunk just to show that you're able to to uh, trust the other person yeah. way. Like if I'm yeah. able to make a fool out of myself uh, in front of you, that we can trust each other. And when I read that, <laughs> like I'm, I'm someone like I, I don't drink very often, but sometimes when I do, I like to let loose. And yeah. I think one of the reasons I like to get let loose, especially when pe with people I'm getting to know is because then after that, I feel like it solidifies the relationship. Yeah. I mean, unless you get into a stupid drunken argument or something. But a lot of the time, I feel like, ooh, we kind of did something mischievous together. Like, I, I let you know something that I shouldn't have let you know. And now we're much closer. And I think this it's so spot on. But it is. It's so spot on. You're, you're really spot on there. Because, you know, it's in business settings, it's basically, are you capable and willing to go beyond your professional persona? Are you capable to show who you really are and vulner show vulnerability, really? And I mean, I remember me being Dutch and for whoever doesn't know that, I mean, this is not very Dutch at all. I mean, we have a very, very super clear split between work and uh, private life, right? And um, I was shocked. 
I, I just thought, what do you mean? Like my boss's birthday and we're all invited and we bring our partners and it's suppo- we're all supposed to get wasted? Like, no, you know, this <laughs> is not my style. But yeah, it's the way you do it. It's the way you do it. Do you know how it is in Belgium? Is there a difference between the Belgians and the Dutch there? Because yeah. I've never worked in Belgium, but what I do know in Belgium is that they love to get drunk <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> but I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if that's only in a friend setting because I've only done it in a friend setting. Yeah. No, it's uh, actually the difference between Dutch and Belgians. Is, if you look at the, the culture map from Aramire, are gigantic. They're gigantic. And that is really tricky because um you know as you know part of the country we you know we speak the same language and that is not an advantage that's in this case not an advantage at all same belgium and france are very different partly speak the same language you know it's very challenging um and belgians yes belgians are much more relationship oriented so i don't know if it's related to them really liking to be drunk but (laughs) but they're definitely more relationship oriented yes so they're they're willing to invest more time in the human relationship in order to build trust yes yeah forgot yeah definitely okay so which scale are we on now well let's continue let's we'll get through it uh disagreeing disagreeing that basically shows from left to right how comfortable are we with the discussion how uncomfortable are we with confrontation and how much do we believe that that hurts the relationship or improves the results, right? So on the left side, more confrontational cultures, the Netherlands, France, highly, highly uh, far left up that scale. You know, those cultures believe that having a good discussion, you know, really, really helps, you know, and that can be heated, that can be confrontational, but that will not harm our relationship. Versus confrontation avoidance, well, um, Brazil, Latin America in general, um, Asian countries also as well, generalizing obviously, but um, they believe, you know, that uh, confrontation harms the relationship and for that reason should be avoided at all costs. And I think this is an interesting skill to highlight that, you know, cultural perception element because... Me, for example, being Dutch, very comfortable with confrontation, operating in Singapore, Japan, Chile, very confrontation avoidant uh, cultures. That provides for me the perception, you know, that they're always, you know, walking around the bush. You know, they're never really telling what is really up their chest. You know, they're really avoidant. And it also gives me the perception, or gave me the perception really, because of course now I know better, but it gave me the perception that, you know, they didn't trust me. Because for me, it's so comfortable to have that discussion, but for them, it's not. So, you know, it creates this perception that really, really, yeah, becomes big. And the other way around, right? Because for them, I was just this rude, inappropriate, confrontational, Bitch, really, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now, another thing to point out here, what I think is important is some people might be shocked to hear that Chile is on the avoids confrontation side or that any Latin American country is on the avoids confrontation side because they're so emotionally expressive. But that's not the same thing. You can be emotionally expressive and avoid confrontation. Right? A lot of people, if you, especially if you don't understand the language and you, you hear the people going at each other, they're they're just talking. They're not actually in, in an argument. That's just the way they're expressing themselves. And the Dutch, exact opposite, right? Very confrontational, but not emotionally expressive. No. So just just an important note there that there isn't. It's it's not the same thing. No, really good, really good that you that you underline that because those are indeed very different things, right? And especially you're spot on when you say you know when you don't speak the language and we're you know we're we're it's only the expressiveness that we have, basically, you know, it, where we stereotype and not. And also from our own cultural context. But, um, yes. No, really good, really good point. Uh, and then the, no, not the last one, almost last one. So scheduling, 
how do we refer to time? Uh, more linear time on the left, things happen in chronological order. Okay, I have a deadline that is this Friday. That means on Thursday I do this, on Wednesday I do, etc. Um, you know, it's it's in a linear planning versus more flexible time um, where, you know, things come as they come. Uh, I always find this very interesting. If I'm in front of a group with people from different cultural backgrounds, I always ask them right on the post-it, right on this yellow post-it, when is too late too late you know when is being late too late for you and that is so interesting because you know for example some a culture that you will find more on the left side of this scale you know more linear timing let's say there's a meeting planned it would start at 8 a.m and you know at 8.05 you know the first people start to become restless you know restless the no-shows are too late where in other cultures, you know, it can take up to two hours, a day even, or a meeting in a calendar is just an indication that the meeting will take place somewhere that week, you know. It's very interesting, um, very interesting skill because this creates a lot of frustration in the workplace. Because mm-hmm. imagine that you're coming from a country that is very far left up that skill, you know, very linear planning. Yeah, it feels that your time is not respected, that your calendar is not respected, that uh, your time is not valued in a certain way if you operate with countries that are more flexible. On the other hand, someone from a more flexible cultural background would say, how stubborn are these people? You know, they're unable, incapable to go outside of the box. You know, they're like... Yeah, you know, narrow-minded, really. So it creates this perception that is simply caused by, yeah, by, in this case, then the scheduling skill. Now, I think here it's also important to realize that Mare based this on Robert Levine's work, um, which looks at whether you look at a clock for scheduling or whether you look at events for scheduling. Of course, if you look at events, then you're going to be a little bit more flexible. And again, here, uh, when I was looking at critique for Erin Mayer, as I said, very hard to find online because she's very much in the business world. She's very good yeah. at marketing. So I think that's why it's <laughs> impossible to find critique on her. Uh, but I'm more of an academic-based guy, so I was able to find all, all the things that she used in references. And if you look at Levine's work, you can find some critique there. You can also see that it might be a little bit outdated. Uh, so just keep in mind when you're looking at this scale, it might be a little bit outdated. Um, now, one thing that I noticed here, I, I found it very accurate from my experiences, except for with China, because China is on the flexible side. And from my experience, Chinese people are so punctual. They respect punctuality, um, but they're very much on the flexible side. And I think it's more so that they're able to roll with the punches and roll with the changes very quickly. And, and I think that's something important to take in mind of this scale too, that some of those countries that are on the flexible side doesn't mean that they don't appreciate punctuality. It means that they're just very flexible and that they can change things quickly. Yeah. Because Spain is also on the flexible side and here people are late a lot of the time. It, it, and they'll admit it. It's it's the way it is. It's lo que hay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but in China, if you're late, you you have to apologize. So don't don't look at that scale and be like, oh, okay, I can be 15 minutes late without apologizing. No, you have to apologize. And yeah, no, really, it's a super good point. And I also I often also say like, you know, um, scheduling and punctuality, you know, are not always they don't go always hand in hand, right? You know, punctuality, I would say. It has to do with, okay, do you show up on time? Which I think China is a super good example. Uh, because yes, do you show up on time in China? It's, it's disrespectful to come late to a meeting. But they have indeed this more flexible approach to changes of, for example, a calendar or, you know, when, you know, when does someone receive the trigger or get annoyed or feels that it goes beyond their preferences? And then Chinese have a bit more tolerance, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then I think it's also important to look at the other scales as well that might play a role in it. Like for instance, here in Spain, where it's flexible, if you have to change something, it's going to take a while for you to change. It's going to like you might it might take months to reschedule things, things like that. Um, whereas in China, it's going to be very fast. Yeah. And that might have to do a little bit more with the top down side of things, the hierarchical side of things. Um, but so it's just something to realize that you have when something kind of confuses you on one of these scales, make sure to look at the other scales as well to see what's influencing it. Yeah, really good point because, you know, uh, again, it doesn't really matter where on the scale uh, a country lands. You know, it's the distance that creates the cultural perception, but it's indeed the combination between all of those. You know, back to the example of Japan, super hierarchic, but at the same time, the most consensus driven um country in the world if you don't see those two together i mean you might screw up big time right because then you assume oh they're hierarchic i'm the boss i can make all the decisions well i can tell you that that is a huge failure if you do that in japan so it's always good to see them together yes really good yeah and then we have the last one and i would say last but not least it's persuading and of course, this is a very interesting one, especially in the business environment, right? Because how do we persuade one another? How do we convince? How do we learn? Um, you could also look at this one from, let's say, uh, inductive or reductive reasoning. So, you know, how does someone prefer to reason or to, um, to go through or to process certain information? Um, uh, we look at this skill from left to right, basically principles first versus uh, applications first. And I would like to give an example that probably speaks to many. So applications first is, for example, the US. It's a country where if we give a presentation, you know, they are interested. Okay, what is this going to bring me? How do I implement this? Where can I start? How do I start? And um, they are not so, let's say, driven by, okay, where does the information come from? Where, uh, where, did all, where does all the data come from? Who filled in all the data? You know, like the, the backbone behind the material. It's much more about, okay, let's get this show on the road. Let's book results, you know, incentive-driven. That is countries that you will find on the applications first side of that skill versus principles first. And those are countries or cultures that instead of, you know, the implementation are very driven by, okay, but tell me all about the data. Yeah. And maybe a bit, I, I guess if we map out your personal profile on then we will find you a bit more on the principles first side, I think, because you're interested in the academic part. And you're interested in, hey, but how, where does all of this come from? And, and where can I find critique as well, right? Yeah, me personally. and But I think I might be a little bit conflicted here. Also, one of those third culture uh, kids type of um, situations. Because as a Belgian person, a Belgian person is very principles first, I believe. But I was raised in Canada, which is very applications first. So I can get pretty bored if someone just only talks about the theory. And <laughs> yeah, but this is but what I love I love the theory as well. It's just like how do you present it? What's the rhetoric side of things? Yeah. So Yeah. No, and then uh, this is extremely good example. So someone that finds him him or herself on the applications first side of that skill. If that person needs to listen to an hour and a half of all the theory and all the academics behind some sort of material, that person will mentally, physically, and in all angles check out, right? Yeah. Um, and this is why in business, this is such an, a crucial one, because here, especially when you do business internationally, you will find people from all sides of that scale, right? So from all the way left, all the way right, and everything in between. So here I always recommend, you know, you need to really plan your presentation according to this skill 
a bit of theory, a bit of implementations, a bit of, you know, application and back to the theory and also inform your listeners that this is going to happen, that they will feel, okay, there's going to be a moment where you check out, stay with me. I promise, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to come to whatever is your preference. So, um, yeah, now this. I also think it's important to point out that this, this is especially with persuading with presentations, of course, in the business world. Now, I don't, I don't know how accurate this is, but I definitely have a passion for learning languages. I, I work as a teacher as well, and I've noticed that in in Germany and Belgium, uh, where I think languages are taught very well in the public school system, um, it's not all theory first. And principles first, like you do learn the grammar and stuff, but you, you also start talking right away. And then in Canada and in the States, it's actually the opposite, which is strange because you would think an application first country, aren't they just going to get people to start talking? And you don't, you just sit there conjugating verbs all through high school. You leave high school, you don't speak a word of the other language. No. Uh, so what, what about like in Hawkins and Holland languages are quite good too in yeah. the, in the public school system. I mean, you all speak English fluently by, by the end of it, almost. I think always a bit of Isn't misconception, there... to be really honest, but... Uh, uh, really? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, no, but I hear what you mean. It's not... Uh, it is... You're right. Uh, languages are, are spoken quite properly, I would say. It's applications first. It's more applications first versus uh, principles versus the, the Dutch culture. Yeah, okay. Um. Interesting, for example, maybe uh, I, I've never really thought of it, you know, in, in, from a language perspective. Um, yeah, when I started thinking about it, it seemed different than the business world. Yeah, I ca I'm with you on that one. I'm with you on that one. Interesting example, for example, is if you look at this skill, Germans are highly principles first. Japanese are highly principles first. Um super strong car manufacturers, you know, because if you want to build a high performing, very safe engine, it's very convenient to be principles first, right? Because you really yeah. want to make sure that, that every single thing has been checked and protocols are followed and you really want to get to know all the ins and outs of, you know, the process. Where, for example, in an application, first it would be, yeah, okay, let's get this show on the road. But yeah, if you're building a Formula One car, that's not recommended, I guess, you know? So <laughs> that's where you can see a bit of this tendency as well. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. All right. So we, we got all, all over the, we got done with the scale. So I hope that helps the listeners. And again, uh, please, please check out the book from Aaron Mayer. Check out our websites to get into the conversation. Now... As I mentioned earlier, a lot of the, the research is based on Hofstede, um, Nisblet, and a lot of other academics. And one of, on Hofstede scales, like most of Hofstede's overlap with a lot of what Mayer says, except for um, indulgence. At least I couldn't see much of an overlap here. And indulgence is the extent to which people try to control their desires and impulses. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a one that's really important when we're talking about culture because country, well, I think Belgium was on the side where it's not too much control of, of indulgence, right? Like Belgians are very much about enjoying life and, um, yeah, <laughs> enjoy yeah. life and giving, <laughs> giving into giving into some of your impulses and what you want to do. Um, since this isn't in mayor's. Uh, in Mayor's scale, is it in her course that you took or is this something that you maybe picked up on your own and how, how do you incorporate this in, into your work? Well, um, um, I, I see the, a strong connection when we look at, when you look at that skill from Hofstede or that dimension or that theory, basically, um, I very often refer to also external or internal locus of control. Meaning, you know, how much do you believe that you as an individual influence the outcome of certain situations, scenarios, etc. Um, 
because I also see, but this is my personal opinion. Um, I also see a correlation between, for example, religion there, you know, because people that, that practice religion, um, they also, they, they, for the lack of a better word, you know, they, they're more comfortable with surrendering to the universe versus people that, you know, are, are not at any point practicing religion. And, you know, how much do you believe? That certain things are just out of your control and are you then also capable and able to just let go and enjoy life really you know just as a to, to put it lightly um do that, i use it that's a good it, uh, yeah um, depends depends if i'm guiding for example a, a senior executive that is gonna move from a to b in order to lead his or her company in another country, for example, then it comes in. Because if someone has a very strong, let's say, external locus of control, believing, you know, that certain things are just out of my hands and, you know, let's just try to enjoy the ride. But if that person moves to a country where that is less common, that can potentially create some hiccups, right? Other than that, in business, I don't see this as super relevant in the daily life because yeah i think we all agree in regardless of cultural background that in business you know yes certain things are out of our control however you know we still need to work our ass off in order to to make it happen to book results right you see what i mean or De definitely definitely it, make, it makes me think of something else um with how likely you are to hold an incremental view of people and um, North Americans are less likely to hold an incremental view than people from some Asian cultures. And it makes sense. Like if, if, yeah, so like it makes sense if your self varies from situation to situation, right? When we're, we're talking about a lot of Asian cultures, saving face, so yourself has to vary from situation to situation. It seems likely that you would embrace the entity theory. And they, they did this with some studies and they found that uh, 60% of Chinese high school students said that the key to success in math was to study hard. In contrast, less than 25% of American high school students felt this way. <laughs> wow, incredible. Incredible data. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I mean, it, it's very interesting. I think, uh, yeah, there must be a correlation there. Yeah, I, th I think so. Now, here, another one that th this isn't related to this exactly, but it was a study and I, I wrote it down here because I wanted to get your opinion on it because it's not something that is talked about a lot in Mayer's book, uh, but I think it's something very interesting for those in the business world who want to have some ideas about persuasion. Uh, so this was a, a study done by Peng and Nisbet in 1999 and half the participants received only one argument either argument A or argument B. And then they were asked to indicate how compelling they found it to be. Both Americans and Chinese who received only argument A tended to view it as more compelling than those who received only argument B because these participants saw only one argument. Uh, they did not witness any potential contradiction. The other half of the participants were asked to evaluate both of the contradictory arguments these participants saw a potential contradiction. And then how does seeing the contradiction affect evaluations and arguments? So when Americans encounter two contradictory arguments, they come to view the better argument as even more compelling than when they encounter the same argument by itself. In contrast, when Chinese encounter two contradictory arguments, they come to view the weaker argument as more compelling than when it is presented by itself. So I think this could be something very important to start thinking about in the business world. I I hear you because I mean I'm I'm they I mean it's the first time I hear this. I think it's beautifully set up. I think it's a great experiment really. Um I'm thinking of what could be the driver because that that's that got me the most, you know, what is the driver that uh, that the Chinese participants, so to say? 
it comes down to like the holistic thinking apparently yeah. right so if you're more of an analytic thinker you're yeah. going to separate them but if you're a holistic thinker you're more accepting of contradictions yeah exactly um has to be that yeah because but then so then basically when when they have received both arguments Chinese then showed to have a preference towards the weaker argument, right? Do you also uh, believe that that is then coming from the holistic thinking? Yeah, because they're they're more open to having having different viewpoints there, yeah. right? They're accept, they're more accepting of having two possible truths, and that also yeah. that I mean we get in a whole other discussion here, but that really comes down to like Aristotle, um, you know, the, their viewpoints of like. If A is B, then A cannot be. If A is A, then A cannot be B, right? Those kind of viewpoints. Whereas if you look at Guizhi and some of the rhetoricians from China, it's quite a bit different, and it's more about understanding that there are multiple truths and that um, things are fluid. And yeah, well, that this is a whole other discussion. But. Very interesting one, but for another time, probably. But um, no, really interesting, really interesting uh, study. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So, Coco, we're coming up on an hour here. We haven't got too much into your story. So, is there anything that you want to mention to the listeners about your immigration story from going from the Netherlands to Chile and Peru? Well, I mean, uh, I would love that. And I think it's it's um, to make the connection also to, you know, the, the information that we, we talked about earlier today is that if I would have known, coming from the Netherlands, working in a multinational international environment for several years, and then I moved to Singapore, to Japan, to Chile, Peru, if I would have known the impact of my Dutch cultural roots in my effectiveness doing business across cultures, really, um, I would have been, one, a much happier person leading my team would have been so much more, let's say, easeful. And, you know, my team would have been happier also. And I think we're all packed with stereotypes. And those are dangerous because the reality is so much more complex than that. Look at yourself, Nona, you know, your third culture kid. Um, you have a cultural profile that is unique. That is yours, right? That doesn't, that's not Canadian, that's not Chilean, that's not Belgium, that's yours, that's your personal profile. And then, you know, to generalize there and to, to fly on stereotypes is super tricky. So um, what I have learned from my immigration stories is the hard way, you know, I, I went, well, let's say I crossed my own limitations, my own boundaries, but also others because of, you know, just trusting your gut feeling. So my mission is basically to to make as many people as possible aware of how your cultural background, your personal cultural background and, and someone else's has a significant impact on, let's say, your business success, but also your capability of influencing others and, you know, building nice and valuable relationships. And I think... I learned the hard way, so I would really like to prevent the, the listeners of not trying to learn the hard way and to, you know, invest in whatever format, you know, you, you can do that by you seeing a lot of TED Talks, reading books, you know, it doesn't need to be a costly investment, really. Um, and then I think one extremely important disclaimer that I would like to make, or at least an, uh, to underline, is that we talked about the eight dimensions of the culture map and there are a lot of nuances there, right? We were generalizing if we map out countries, but there's also individual nuances like yourself. You grew up in the, you know, you carry a nationality, but when you lived until your puberty in one and the same place, you could more or less say that that place is your cultural background. So even if you carry, let's say, the Dutch nationality, but you're born in Belgium and you live there until your puberty, 
you could say your cultural reference is Belgium. <laughs> in the culture map, in the study and the framework from Aaron Meyer that we went through today, you have the possibility to map out your personal individual one. And that is based on 25 questions and those measure the contradictions, right? So you have similar topics and then negative and positive approached. And by answering those questions, you will get your personal profile map. If you're listening to this and if you're living abroad or you're planning to move abroad or you're working with different cultures, this is not a huge investment. I would really recommend everyone to map out your personal one because if I would have known my personal one before going to Japan, I would tell you, I can tell you, like, I would have been so much more happy, successful at work. My team would have understood me much better. You know, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very fun process, but it's a very, yeah, beneficial process as well. Perfect. Well, Coco, thank you so much for all that. Again, listeners, I encourage you all to check out Coco's work with Cross-Cultural Solutions. I'm going to put links in the description. So if you happen to want to know more about this personally, you can contact her. And of course, if you have a business or an organization and you're o opening an office somewhere else or you're having some conflicts within your organization, um, contact Coco Hoffs for cultural consultant, consulting. Um, now, if you're interested in English classes with the business English side of things with some cultural competence and cultural consulting. That's something that I offer on my website as well. So you can check out www.withoutborders.fyi and I encourage you all to join the conversation because as much research as we've both done, I don't want to pretend that we have all the answers. This needs to be something that is discussion-based and that is ongoing. And uh, remember, listeners, there's a new episode every Tuesday, so tune in next time.